welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. According to the media, politician X, you fill in the name, is the worst person in the history of the Republic, or a shining light trying to save the nation from its enemies, depending on which media source you choose. How can one know what's really happening when news sources are so partisan? I'm not talking about today, of course, although I could be, but about 1867 and the challenge of convincing the northern public about persuasive, pervasive white resistance to Reconstruction in the South. We'll find out how this was done when we talk with Professor William A. Blair, author of The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building here on the campus of East Carolina University, not Eastern Carolina University, as ESPN would sometimes have it, but ECU, East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, not South Carolina, as ESPN might sometimes have it, uh, here the home of the Pirates, but I am not speaking for the Pirates tonight, not speaking for anyone but myself. Likewise, our guest speaks only for himself, as we always do it legal fashion here on Civil War Talk Radio. So welcome to the show, and welcome to The Sexy Lifestyle. Uh, If you check on EC, not ECU, on, on Civil War Talk Radio's Facebook page called Impediments of War, uh... We posted the most recent advertisement from Voice America, who produced this show, and they advertise many of the podcasts or shows that they uh, that they have. And the latest ad has a big picture in the center of one called "The Sexy Lifestyle," 
And then two smaller pictures at the bottom, one of which is this program, Civil War Talk Radio. So the impression the the uh, casual viewer gets is that it's all about the sexy lifestyle, and to be part of it, you need to listen to Civil War Talk Radio. And I can't argue with that. Uh, it has been a good weekend, past week here at ECU, uh, academically as always, but athletically too. The uh, football, women's football, the uh, soccer team beat number 19, Southern Methodist, with a late goal last Thursday. It was an awesome performance and uh, helped them beat a ranked team. They, are, they may be ranked themselves before too long. And on, on Saturday, the men played Campbell University, the Camels of Campbell. It's one thing to play an FBS school or FCS school, whatever, the Division Two, you know, the small schools. Um, but ECU did that last year and barely beat them. They were so overconfident. They took that to heart, and this year they took care of business and, and whipped up on, on Campbell. This week we play Navy. That will be a real game. If I don't talk about it next week, that that's, it'll be a bad outcome. Uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio, uh, uh, we have the usual sponsors who aren't really sponsors. I just mention them because I like them. Uh, one of them is the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College, taking place next June. Go to Gettysburg edu to find out more about it and if you sign up for it which i highly recommend use discount code par i have no idea what it stands for but uh it is it will get you a discount just for listening to this show and knowing those magic letters our actual unpaid unaware doesn't know we exist sponsor tonight is going to be uh, the Farmer and the Dale, D-A-I-L, a bakery in Snow Hill, North Carolina. They they sell slices of their cake through Pirate's Deli across the street from uh, the building that I work in. Used to be Mike's Deli, uh, but Terry, the owner, retired, and uh, some new people took it over. And, and they, they sell these really uh, excellent slices of cake. They, they're called slices. They're as big as a quarter of a cake. One of them lasts Emily and me most of a week. Uh, so if you're in Snow Hill, check out the Farmer and the Dale. I've never been there, but the cake is good. Sometimes people ask, how do you get your book on Civil War Talk Radio? Not an uncommon question, actually, so take two minutes to say something about that. Typically, uh, I'll get copies sent to me by a publicist or a, a publisher, or you will recommend one to me. I'll get emails from listeners saying, what about this? And I'll use the Civil War Talk Radio book fund and buy a copy. But I get more books than there are shows, so I can't interview everybody. And sometimes I have to write what amounts to a rejection note to an author. I don't like doing that. Uh, if the author is somebody who's written bestsellers, now they're going to try their hand at Civil War history instead of some other kind of history. I, I don't mind telling them they're going to make enough money from their book. It doesn't bother me. But when the book is a labor of love, first book coming out, it's it's difficult. Um, I got a couple of such books recently, uh, or, or, well, close to that definition. One of them is called The History of the 118th Ohio Volunteer Infantry, 23rd Corps. It is uh, regimental history, as you can guess from that. It is mm, f close to 500 pages, uh, which is, is makes it a little bit long to talk about on this show. 
And it's clearly a labor of love by the author, Mike Klinger. He's spent years researching this. If you have a relative who was in the 118th Ohio, look this book up. Get a copy. If you're just interested in the Atlanta campaign or uh, Hood and Tennessee fighting against Hood in Tennessee, you know, the book would be of interest. But uh, the book is produced, I won't say published, by one of those pay-to-play organizations. So there's no editing which this author really deserves. Uh, it, it's unfortunate. In the hands of an actual publisher with civil war expertise, this book would get to a lot more libraries and readers than it probably will. But feel free to go get yourself a copy. Uh, Mike Klinger's History of the 118th Ohio. You'll see what I mean. Another one, uh, again, I thought this would be good for the show, but not quite. It's called WG. The opium-addicted, pistol-toting preacher who raised the first federal African-American Union troops. It's by two siblings, Donna Birch and William Birch. Uh, it's a great topic, uh, obscure. No one's written much about it. And they, they write well, and research is good. It's just that it's not 100 pages long. It's really an article, long article, more than a book, uh, given the illustrations and everything. And I don't know if I could come up with an hour's conversation so uh, but if you're interested in something you probably don't know anything about as I didn't uh, it's about W.G. Raymond uh, check it out the authors are uh, Donna Birch B-U-R-T-C-H and William Birch and uh, I think you'll enjoy it people we will have on the show coming up next week uh, Chris Bryan with his campaign history of the 12th Corps from July to September 1862. On the 5th of October, Jeffrey D. Wirt and his book on Spotsylvania. We'll take a week off, do a Civil War uh, road trip with the uh, over this hallowed ground, as we do periodically. And on the 19th of October, come back. Brian Cheeseboro from the National Archives will join us. And on the 26th of October, uh, return of our friend Wade Sokolowski. He will talk about the Save Wise Fork Battlefield Movement. And I'll I'll also ask him about his new book on North Carolina hospitals during the war. But really want to find out what we can all do to prevent Wise Fork Battlefield here in North Carolina from being paved over. You can follow all these at impedimentsofwar.org on the web or the Facebook page of the same name, Impediments of War. Uh, Mark Gaffney keeps keeps things up to date there. And uh, by going to either of those uh, Facebook page or website, you too will be living the sexy lifestyle. Well, tonight we welcome back for the first time since 2014, which seems an absurdly long time ago, uh, William A. Blair. He is the author of the record of murders and outrages, racial violence, and the fight over truth at the dawn of Reconstruction. Bill, are you there? Yeah, I sure am, and thank you for the introduction. Well, well, thank you for joining me tonight. Good to have you back on the show. I was stunned, as I often am, when when you get a repeat guest. I think, oh, he was just on three years ago, two years ago, and uh, it, it it's been longer than that. Um, when you were last on, we talked about your book with malice towards some, the history of treason in the Civil War era. And tonight we're looking at this book, The Record of Murders and Outrages. Um, treason, murder, outrage, these are not 
Magnolias and Moonlight Civil War books. Do you see yourself as part of uh, what some people used to call the dark turn in Civil War scholarship? Until you mention it, no, but <laughs> who knows? Um, uh-huh. I just found the topics interesting. Um, the first one, uh, with treason, it was just um, trying to figure out how to deal with the northern home front, what would be an, a new way of talking about it uh, for the sesquicentennial series for UNC Press. Mm-hmm. And after really racking my brains for a long time, it was staring me in the face that um, uh, every day uh, every, in every newspaper was uh, commentary on treason all the time. And that was really the thing that was driving most uh, northerners at that point. Uh, with this other one, uh, with uh, the mur- record of murders and outrages, it was an itch I couldn't scratch for almost 30 years. It just Really? Yeah, it uh, first occurred to me when I was doing my dissertation back 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and I just pulled down a... Um, I was in the uh, Alderman Library at UNC uh, looking at some stuff, and I just, you know, when you crank microfilm, you just get tired and you get a little cranky, and you uh-huh. get up and you... And you start looking around, and I was, and fortunately they have open stack or had open stacks there, mm-hmm. and I went and grabbed one off. There was the Freedmen's Bureau for Virginia, and when I put it onto the uh, micro or the microfilm reader, the first page that came up was uh, records relating to murders and outrages, and I went, what? Um, that that was really just a a real shock to me, and I, I wondered, this was a government record. Mm-hmm. I knew it dealt with African-Americans because it was the Freedmen's Bureau, and here was a title that was basically acknowledging that there were some atrocities occurring in the South. And at that point, I asked even myself, I thought, huh, what bureaucrat wakes up one morning and says, how do I even file this information? What do I put it under? And he goes, I know, murders and outrages. And I thought, <laughs> wow, what a, what a statement um, that this whole thing was making. And it just made me wonder, did it have a use? Did it just get uh, put into the bowels of an archive like many things do? Mm-hmm. Why did it even exist? And that really bugged me for the better part of 30 years. Wow. I mean, it is a great title. It does leap off the, the cover of the book. And... and uh, very much not uh, the bloodless bureaucratic kind of language. The uh, I'd, I'd have to say a word about microfilm. It occurs to me uh, many of our listeners will be old enough to be familiar with it, may have done some research in their undergrad or even grad programs themselves. But I'm wondering, do it is given the process of digitization? Uh, how much do your students you know, still work with microfilm? Well, that's a good uh, question. I think there are still some things that are only available by microfilm, but if they are online, there's no question that the, new, the current day students are going to the online version. Uh, so it's probably a slow or even maybe rapidly accelerating, that I don't know, um, transition uh, to using much more digital sources. And a lot of the microfilm uh, that I used to look at um, is actually now 
online, mm-hmm. although not these particular records. Uh, they were, I actually bought uh, the microfilm reels from the National Archives in order to do the research. Mm. Do you have your own microfilm reader? No, I wish I did, but no, I just use Penn State's. Uh, the beauty of it today, though, is that you can order microfilm that is on CD-ROM. Oh. Um, so it, instead of having it come to you the old way with you know, that tape uh, mm-hmm. around a reel, you can get it on a CD-ROM, and it'll, it has images for you. And that, that's a much more friendly way of doing it. And you can actually blow it up and shrink it or do whatever you need to do to start to read some of the ideas, some of the things. Yeah, that makes makes a big difference. I I recall in our department here at ECU when the uh, microfilm readers were being taken out of the library, and some of us in the history department said, "Well, you got to save one, because uh, some of us still use that stuff." Mm-hmm. But but uh, I'm not sure uh, if if they even have one left anymore. Uh, well, the I want to get to the substance of what you've written about here, which I've, I found fascinating. We're going to take a short break first. Uh, they will take care of some business at Voice America, and we'll come right back. We're talking tonight with Bill Blair. He's the author of The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence, and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu. Dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with William A. Blair, author of The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence, and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. So, Bill, in the first segment, you said you found this set of microfilm reels, and it's got this this really 
vivid title. That's the official title in the government documents, Record of Murders and Outrages. Uh, so where is it? From? Set the stage. When when was this produced? Well, uh, that was the uh, detective hunt that had to happen, and that was what was bothering me for so many years. And I finally stumbled upon newspaper accounts that showed Henry Wilson, a key senator from Massachusetts who was one of the leading radicals in Congress, he was actually unveiling some of this data and some of the reports of crimes in the South in the Senate in February of 1867. And I suddenly went, aha, there it is. And I, I could work my way backward from that particular moment and start to see, why did this material even exist? And as I started uh, going more into newspaper and other sources, it, it really was echoing with our own time in so many ways that there was a big denial, a big partisan divide that made people on both sides mistrust each other in what they were saying as accurate and especially Democrats, who at that time were the more conservative party, uh, were saying that Republicans were creating this notion of violence in the South so that they could take harder and harder measures against former rebels, and even they hoped, according to the Republicans, to lead toward black suffrage. So the Democrats were just absolutely not on board with this and just ignored the fact that uh, violence was occurring. So many uh, Republicans started to fig try to figure out how do we prove to the nation that violence was occurring. And the key people behind it were really uh, Ulysses S. Grant, uh, who was general in chief at the time, uh, O.O. Howard, who was the uh, um, commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau then, and Edwin Stanton, the uh, secretary of war. And together they basically should I say conspired? I don't know that's the right word. Mm -hmm. But they started to keep uh, an actually official record, ordering their people who were all the way throughout the South, the Freedmen's Bureau agents and military officers um, as well, to report on violence. And they used it deliberately to feed it to the Congress and to Senator Henry Wilson so that he could say that we needed military intervention in the South and we needed to change the federal government's posture on what it could do against individuals who were uh, violating civil rights. So you've got this situation where, where people like Wilson and other uh, Republican senators want to see change in the South. You've got a, a conservative Democratic president in Andrew Johnson who... Uh, who, who doesn't think there's violence happening there, or doesn't see any any problems happening there? Uh, the, the so so there's this deep divide. I was interested uh, in reading this book to see that, that Johnson himself sent uh, Grant south initially. It was, it was like '65 or maybe early 1866. He sent Carl Schurz, who listeners will remember as a division commander under Oliver Howard during the war in the 11th Corps. Uh, he sends shirts and he sends uh, Grant to report back, and uh, and Schertz says, "Yeah, there's plenty of violence." Grant initially says there isn't, but it sounds like he had a change of heart. If if later on he's ordering uh, officers to report him. Well, Grant uh, didn't want to go on the trip that mm -hmm. Johnson ordered him to do, and he did about a five-day swing through the South. There was perfunctory at best, 
never yes. really interviewing African Americans and only visiting with um, uh, former Confederate leaders. Uh, so it's not a real shock that that is the conclusion that he reached at that particular time. To his credit, though, he almost, well, very quickly, within weeks, regretted that report, and he started to actually goad his uh, underlings to -hmm. try to furnish him with data to see, to prove to himself, in fact, first and foremost, what was really happening in the South. And by the early 1866, it was becoming clear to Grant that he was wrong in his assessment uh, during late 1865, and Mm -hmm. that the violence was really becoming out of hand. Now, you mentioned the Freedmen's Bureau, and and a lot of people off the top of their heads may may not recognize that the Freedmen's Bureau is actually a military organization. Uh, they're, right. they're part of the can, can describe where the, how they fit into this. Well, they they became an organization in, in March of 1865, and what happened was to aid the transition to freedom of the enslaved people. Uh, Congress decided to put military officers who were uh, named Freedmen's Bureau agents into communities throughout much of the South, and what they were to do was to do things like uh, create hospitals, create schools encourage marriages, but especially, first and foremost, to conduct labor relations and make sure that uh, former enslaved people were now being paid and and working under the operation of free labor. Way down on the list was the notion of maybe uh, protecting them and keeping order and peace in the South. But as the uh, years unfolded, that became a higher and higher priority because uh, the violence in the South was just becoming endemic. So, eventually, uh, Oliver Howard, who, who's the commander of the Freedmen's Bureau, orders his subordinates to start documenting these these outrages and murders that are taking place. Uh, did this happen with military precision throughout the the Freedmen's Bureau? Oh, no. I mean, back then, records creeping was <laughs> uh, not what we would hope for. Um, it was uh, inconsistent. Uh, some people kept uh, good records, and uh, and even at, even at that, there were different ways of doing it. Some just did tabulations, you know, good old uh, data, like an Excel sheet, and would you know, record their crimes. Others would do it more in a um, paragraph fashion and would actually be descriptive, uh, of what was going on. So there was no real clear order to a lot of this. Uh, it was pretty much how did the individual officers on the ground, how did they like to actually report this stuff and get it up to Washington? One interesting section you have, uh, you, you talk about the members of the Freedmen's Bureau and you give the example of uh, uh, of John William DeForest as a, a, an exemplar of a union officer who was reporting on these things. And he's, uh, some listeners will, I'm sure, recognize he's the author of uh, Miss Ravenel's Conversion, the uh, the novel, the, one, of the, one of the great post-war novels. And uh, he also wrote a great memoir, and the name's escaping me now. Was that a volunteer's adventures, I think? Yeah, um, it was, yeah. Yeah, which is also one of the great memoirs of, of the Civil War. But, so when I saw his name pop up, I thought, oh, I know that guy. He, he's a good guy. 
but you point out his sympathy for the African Americans for whom he's nominally working as a member of the Freedmen's Bureau is is not unalloyed. Is that fair to say? No, it was kind of mixed. Um, you could tell that with uh, well, a lot of these officers were thrown into bad situations without any guidance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you would you can't even imagine how little. Um, uh, supervision and guidance was given to people in these kinds of conditions. There were not that many directives. Uh, they didn't know really always what to do. They had to sort of uh, suss out what they were going to follow and do in, based on the conditions that they faced at that time. And they had faced enormous pressures. Uh, the pressures were coming from white Confederates, former Confederates, who were uh, obviously not happy to have this military arm in their communities. And they uh, could actually socially ostracize them, or they could even try to kill them. And there were murders of Freedmen's Bureau agents um, who were resented by the white South. And then, of course, you are facing a continuous parade of freed people who are coming to you asking for numerous things, uh, food, uh, protection, and so on. And you could see the frustration in some of these uh, folks. Uh, DeForest being one of them, who is just trying to figure out uh, how do I, what do I do here, and what mm-hmm. is it that I could uh, do in this particular situation? And sometimes, of course, racism blinded him, and I have no doubt uh, that that would occur. Mm-hmm. But the odd thing is, I mean, the Freemans Bureau has been bandied about as whether they were good for African Americans or bad for African Americans in the literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, the point is that. They were flooded by African-Americans who knew that they were the only real hope in the South at that time for any kind of justice or any kind of treatment that was humane. I, that was quite striking that, that you, you talk about how many freed people really risked their lives to report these murders and outrages, uh, not not just to ask for, like you said, for, for shelter or education or... Uh, food or help with a labor contract, but but also to report this bad thing has happened in our community. This happened to my relative. Uh, they must they must have been taking their own lives in their hands to do that. No, absolutely. That was something that jumped out fairly clearly from the record. And there was one example in the book that just always has stuck with me. It's the mm-hmm. the example I've used with uh, teachers and with other people. And it was a woman who was in Louisiana who was uh, knifed four times by the son of uh, her former master. And um, and you would think that, for, well, first of all, she did go and report it to the mm-hmm. Freedmen's Bureau. And when she did, um, of course, she faced um, pressure from either that gentleman or his cronies that mm-hmm. if she proceeded further, she was going to be killed. And what happened was... Uh, he went, actually, this is a kind of odd, that he actually went to trial and went down to uh, Baton Rouge, I think. Or no, New Orleans, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And um, while there, of course, she doesn't show up because of uh, witness intimidation. Uh, and then what happens is uh, he's immediately put on the grand jury, which is to decide on what are the crimes that should move forward and be prosecuted in in that particular arena. That just screams... <laughs> To um, uh, the injustice that was occurring. And here is this poor woman who was risking her life just to tell this story. 
And then if she had proceeded further, there was no doubt in my, my mind she would have been mm-hmm. she would have been killed. Right. And and yet the the guy who assaults her, he comes to court ostensibly to see if he's going to be put on trial. They say, well, your accuser's not here. By the way, you can be on the grand jury now. Yeah, you can that, decide that's, what is a crime. <laughs> yeah, that, that uh, there is. Uh, the, I mean, how big is the record of murders and outrages? How how what did the Freedmen's Bureau well, report? What we pulled together, and again, this is probably not all inclusive because the records mm-hmm. were uh, uh, tainted in many. Not tainted is not the right word, but just you know they were mm-hmm. they were making it up as they go. So we only got uh, a total of about just close to 4,000 incident reports. Mm. And when I say an incident report, and first of all, this is over from mostly 1866 through 68, although mm-hmm. there were a handful of uh, cases or incident reports from 1865. But one incident report could have multiple uh, crimes uh, in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, there's a massacre that I had never heard of until I got into this project, then in Bossier Parish, uh, North, mm-hmm. North Louisiana, right. that the one entry from this Freedmen's Bureau agent suggested there were 100 people killed. So the record itself, even though about 4,000 um, items, maybe contains over 5,000 or so people who were victimized by violence. And you point out that while scholars didn't use this material for years, in in the last half century, uh, scholarship has turned to recognizing some of the level of violence. So that the the riots, the anti-black riots in Memphis or New Orleans, are now routinely included in in textbooks, included in in uh, in, in teaching about Reconstruction. But you suggest that these records that you found actually show that that's just the tip of the iceberg. These these urban riots have been well publicized, but there's a lot of violence happening out that we don't see. That's what the record really exposed to me, was that the extent of uh, rural violence, uh, that which had never been reported. Now, that particular mm-hmm. massacre that I just mentioned in Bossier mm-hmm. Parish, Louisiana, uh, the uh, Louisiana historians local historians, they especially do know it. But what mm-hmm. I found interesting is that that particular uh, episode, which probably ended up in uh, almost 200 people being killed over maybe a couple of a week period in mm-hmm. 1868, which is just a, uh, unfathomable uh, if you think yeah. about it. Um, the, it really is not in any of the current um, works on Reconstruction, and when I did an informal poll of some of my friends who were actually Reconstruction specialists, I said, do you know about Bossier Parish? And almost all of them said no. Um, It had been reported in progressive-era historians who were the ones working with uh, a racial caste, frankly, uh, Mm -hmm. back in the early 1900s, but they basically dismissed it and called it overcharged and probably not really accurate. Um, so for a long time, those particular kinds of rural episodes really had not been part of the uh, conversation in Reconstruction literature. I, I mean, it really is fascinating. They're, they're, they're hiding in plain sight. They're in this government document. Uh, and when I say document, there there are a couple of different versions. You, you talked about Henry Wilson 
uh, Senator Wilson showing up with a uh, a document to uh, um, you know to support his, his efforts toward military reconstruction. Uh, there's also, and I'm looking at my notes. What was it in um, uh, in 1877? We, there's another example, and I'm going to page through the book and make sure I get the details right and ask you about it. While I'm doing that, we'll take another short break. Uh, we'll come back and talk more with our guest tonight, William A. Blair. He's the author of The Record of Murders and Outrages: Racial Violence and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Bill Blair, author of The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. Uh, so we've been talking about this document, uh, compiled data assembled by the Freedmen's Bureau so that there would be a, a factual record of just how much violence was occurring uh, in the face of, of resistance in the North to believing that anything was wrong uh, during Reconstruction. And this moment that, that I wanted to ask you about happens in January 1877 when, uh, again, the Democrats are challenging Grant's use of the army uh, in the South and they think he's trying to to tamper with elections there and a congressman says send us any evidence you have of any problems in the south any racial violence and boom the executive branch sends a 500 page document uh to the house detailing all these murders and outrages is that the same report that wilson had or does that incorporate wilson's what's the relationship of those two documents uh, the, the it really it started the basis of it would have mm-hmm. been 
the stuff that was given to Wilson at first. Although the Freeman's Bureau kept accumulating materials even beyond mm -hmm. that. You know, once Wilson and his cronies in 1867 who got military reconstruction passed, even though they cared about violence and they didn't want it to happen, mm -hmm. and that the 14th Amendment was supposedly to help address that, uh, you know, they weren't as interested in using that as data uh, on the floors of Congress. But the Freemans Bureau kept accumulating it until they were really phased out uh, after 1868. So they had all this stuff. And then you had the uh, Ku Klux Klan um, investigations that occurred in the 1870s, 1871 especially. Uh, and so there was this massive data that, uh, that you had that would show that, especially as it concerned Louisiana and Georgia and some of the other states, that uh, there probably had not been a free election for a good long time, and that the elections were being uh, uh, thwarted and guided by violence against African Americans. The, the, the chapter is where you describe how the, uh, the Klan is formed and, and how it operates you know, to, to disrupt elections or to intimidate voters. Uh, you say that while this is going on, you give examples of from northern newspapers, uh, people who oppose, who don't believe that it's happening, and say that the Klan doesn't even exist, in the face of, of vast evidence that it does. And again, I, I'm sure this rings a bell with listeners, that to, to live in a political society where facts don't seem to matter, that, that evidence doesn't persuade people they've already made up their minds and no amount of factual data will change their minds when you started this project certainly when you first became aware of these documents you know decades ago we didn't live in quite such a society as we do now where where factual evidence is no longer seems to hold sway with a lot of people mm -hmm. no you're absolutely I, right about that i think by not getting to this project until more recently, mm -hmm. I really had a different appreciation for what I was finding. There's no question. Well, that, that's exactly it. That, that when historians choose topics, we don't typically don't look at the headlines and go, "I'm going to write something relevant." Uh, it's rather something just grabs us. But how many times? How often does it happen that that something that seemed interesting five, ten, fifteen years ago, by the time you get to it, it really is in the headlines? And it really yeah, is something. I, I, I don't think I would have appreciated the extent that I do the amount mm -hmm. of denial of racial violence that occurred. And the thing that actually makes me even more um, surprised, or I shouldn't even say surprised, I knew the North was racist at mm -hmm. that time, but you have to remember that the denial that's occurring in Congress is not occurring among Southern politicians. Right. Uh, they would have denied it as well, but Southern politicians are not in the Congress. They're not admitted yet at that time. So the people who are fighting back and opposing the fact that violence even existed in the South are Northern. And that sometimes is hard to wrap your head around. It, it is. One of the things, many things that strikes me about this book, listeners may be thinking, that must be a big book with all the things he's commenting on, is it's really a very short book. It's not 200 pages, uh, barely uh, 140 pages of text, yet it packs all this, this information, all these observations in, into a, a slim volume. Did you, did you make an effort to keep it slim, to be accessible? What, what was the thinking? 
No, I did. I, I wanted to make the writing accessible, and I wanted to make the book accessible for two. Well, one, I hope for course adoptions, because they're really, I've been teaching for a long time, or had been until mm-hmm. I retired, mm-hmm. and there really weren't that many books that were good, short books to use in the classroom for reconstruction. Mm-hmm. However, the other aspect is, as you probably know, reconstruction is so under appreciated or underknown by most of the public. And uh, it's uh, tough not to sometimes wrap your head around because of all the violence and everything that happened. And I was hoping to write a book that would give some of the people who would, were not as familiar with some of the uh, uh, phases of Reconstruction, at least why did some of these things happen? Why did the North imposed military rule on the South? Why did we have military interfering in elections? Why did we have civil rights acts? Why did we have the 14th Amendment? And a lot of it comes down to Southern intransigence and the uh, absolute violence that was occurring in the South. Well, I I certainly agree with you that this is an an under, uh, not a poorly understood period in American history, uh, and and one reason why we're having this conversation tonight on Civil War Talk Radio, even though we're looking at a book at Reconstruction, it does have Oliver Howard, U.S. Grant, Carl Schertz, uh, Winfield Scott Hancock is in it. There are a lot of figures listeners will know from the war, but it does show how these, how in many ways the war has not ended for these uh, at former Confederates who are committing this violence. And for the Union Army in the South, it's it's trying to prevent the violence or, or respond to it. Uh, it really does suggest the war is not fully over in 1866 yeah. or 67. Now, yeah, another thing... Go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no what please. I saw in, in, uh, that um, I could see with better detail and would teach better, I think, mm-hmm. in the classroom today is that uh, Reconstruction went through certain ebbs and flows. And one of the... Uh, Ebbs was that um, in 1867, once military reconstruction came, violence actually didn't peter out, but it ebbed a little bit. And it was because the South or Southern whites were not sure what was going to happen or what is the military going to do, because now all of a sudden there's a greater military presence in the South. But then once they see through 1867 that they adjust to it, and then, because of the specter of uh, black voting and the army down there actually registering voters, meaning black people, to vote, mm-hmm. it really inflames many of the um, white South. And by 1868, you see the rise of the Klan and you see the rise of political terrorism to try to stop that in the South. So I, I, I knew that, but I didn't really appreciate uh, those kinds of ebbs and flows. One of the many things I learned from this, mentioning voter registration, was how voter registration itself was not uh, a common practice until Reconstruction. That, that before no, that, you just walked true. up and voted. Yep, Can you absolutely talk about true. That? Uh, it was really something I even found out in my treason book uh, back in 2014. Uh, uh, Maryland and some of the other states, um, in order, and Missouri especially, in order to... Um, ensure that there would be radical governments, meaning Republican governments, mm-hmm. um, started in the Institute uh, Voter Registration. Um, so what became clear, 
the irony is that voter registration was starting to be adopted and created in order to restrict voting, not to expand it. Mm. Uh, so in, in, but in, in the case that I was seeing, that was a good thing because it was trying to um, make sure that black people voted and that the mm-hmm. wrong people uh, did not. And those wrong people would be the traitors. Then, and of course, you show here that uh, this leads to a situation where you eventually have people, uh, you know, on, on election boards, making sure people are properly registered and excluding those who are not properly registered. In some cases, you have African American voting board members excluding former mm-hmm. Confederate white would-be voters. Uh, definitely, the bottom rail is on top, and and this leads as you show, to, to a, a violent white backlash. Uh, now, one of the other, yet another thing that, that grabbed me about this were the charts showing where this violence happened, uh, not always in places one would expect. Uh, the state of Tennessee, for example, which is reconstructed in theory quite early, uh, has a surprising amount of, of violence reported here. Uh, but but well, let me jump to Texas though is the biggest in all things as always, and it's also the biggest in racial violence. Yeah, what was going on in Texas? Well, fifty-seven percent of all the incident reports that the Freedmen's Bureau uh, gathered concerning mm-hmm. violence through eighteen sixty-five through eighteen sixty-eight happened in Texas, and it was just amazing to me. I I, I never appreciated that before doing this. Uh, Texas was a um, a rare, um, rare thing because during the Confederacy, it really never experienced much invasions. It really was never all that threatened uh, by an outside force. Most of the um, fissures that occurred and most of the tensions were internal, and there were there was a strong Unionist faction uh, within mm-hmm. the state that opposed a strong secessionist faction a majority secessionist faction. Mm-hmm. Um, they had actually formed even before the Civil War, but during the war, they went at each other tooth and nail. The secessionists clamped down on um, any and all units uh, that they saw, including hangings in uh, Gainesville, Texas, mm-hmm. uh, of unionists. And there were other episodes of violence against unionists. So these two were going at each other tooth and nail, and then all of a sudden, when you you end uh, the war and you open up the prospect of potentially adding black voters to this mix, those black voters were going to be on the side of the unionists. Mm-hmm. And boy, that did not sit well uh, with the former Confederates. And you just saw a ramping up of violence that was uh, incredible at that time. Now, in the epilogue of this book, you talk about how this... I guess I'll call it a tradition of using, or the example of the Freedmen's Bureau collecting data to make their political point that there is violence happening, gets carried on. Uh, you cite the example of Ida B. Wells in the 1890s campaigning for a federal lynch, anti-lynching law that she uses data uh, of, of lynchings that take place. But it's not... But neither her arguments nor the, the until now almost unknown uh, Freedmen's Bureau material isn't accepted by historians. Uh, uh, listeners will know about the Dunning School of, of, of uh, racist visions of, of Reconstruction. Are, are we finally over that, at least in the academy? 
Well, in the academy, we certainly are. Um, mm-hmm. I have no way of knowing uh, what the public's views are uh, specifically. But by now, the Freedmen's Bureau records are being used uh, in almost every uh, book you see on Reconstruction that deals with even a hint of violence. So uh, what was, what's interesting is that most scholars who use that data don't know why it exists uh, in the first place. Uh, and that's what my book actually does. However, there is no denial of the violence that occurred in the South among scholars today. Mm-hmm. No, and, and it sometimes takes a generation for that to filter down as we teach our classes uh, uh, for for. For for that to become part of the popular culture to supplant and replace yeah. the gone with the wind vision, but uh, we can only keep keep chopping that wood as it were. Yeah. Uh, the with just a minute left, let me ask: Are you working on uh, another project? Yeah, actually, I'm uh, getting I'm starting to outline uh, my current book project, which is on hundred years of black life at Arlington Cemetery. It deals mm. with. Um, 1802 to 1900, from the rise of the slave plantation that it was under uh, Custis and until the disbanding of the Freedmen's Bureau in 1900. Wow. So that, that will be something to look forward to. Um, well, this this book said I, I really cannot say enough about it. When, I, when it came in, when uh, UNC Press published it, uh, and it came across my desk, I saw oh, it's a, a little book. You know what? It's not really a civil war, but I'll take a look at it, and then start reading it and see all these these familiar characters from the, from the war years uh, refighting these battles by exposing that the ex-Confederates haven't stopped fighting uh, or committing violence. It, it's a fascinating uh, piece, listeners. You your eyes will be opened, and the echoes of of modern media battles uh, over evidence and opinion. Uh, just just reflect off every page, even though, as you say, Bill, it wasn't your initial intent. Uh, it's a book that comes along and couldn't be more timely. So, uh, listeners, get yourself a copy of The Record of Murders and Outrages, Racial Violence, and the Fight Over Truth at the Dawn of Reconstruction. William A. Blair is the author. Bill, thank you so much for coming back to Civil War Talk Radio. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And listeners, as always... Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.